Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Given that we live in an era roiled by concerns about how democratic, supposedly democratic countries actually are, and when skepticism abounds about how truly representatives representative our electoral systems are, a scholarly study of debates on many of these issues among leading theorists of democracy in Victorian Britain is just the ticket. This is what is on offer in the 2019 book by Gregory Conti, Parliament, the Mirror of the Nation, Representative, Representation, Deliberation, and Democracy in Victorian Britain. Conti employs tools of the fields of political theory and political and intellectual history to render vivid and touching the fierce debates among such well-known figures as John Stuart Mill and Walter Badgett, as well as in-between figures such as Thomas Hare, 1806 to 1891. Fierce in terms of the sometimes cruel lapooning of their respective opponents and touching in that many of the proponents of these proposed reforms, such as proportional representation and the single transferable vote, were convinced that their nostrums would usher in a golden age for Britain's parliament and thereby the nation. Note, though, that for many of the figures in this book, it was the proper workings of parliament and its capacity for reasoned deliberation that they cared about, not so much democratic processes per se in terms of how representatives got elected to it. Indeed, much of what was advocated was designed to keep certain groups out of parliament and government generally. For many of the thinkers discussed in this book, Parliament and its member makeup should mirror the composition of the nation at large. This, this was particularly true of adherents of the variety of suffrages theory who pined for the hodgepodge of electoral constituencies, especially those in the countryside that were controlled by aristocrats and which were derisively referred to as rotten boroughs or pocket boroughs that prevailed before passage of the Reform Act of 1832. Badgett was of this school. Others, like Mill and Hare, were enamored of the rather complex system of proportional representation, believing that it would militate against what they saw as the evil of too much power devolving to political parties, which they feared would be dominated by intellectually inferior plebeians. The word swamped was often used. Finally, there were straight-up Democrats, such as the future leader of the Labour Party and future Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald, who opposed proportional representation as fundamentally elitist and a hindrance to robust debate and effective government. Conti's book is a fascinating exploration of a relatively neglected period in the history of discourse on what democracies need to thrive, who should be allowed to vote, how voting should be done, and whether votes mattered so much as seats in Parliament. There were even arguments if some people did not get to vote, but their interests were represented, that was good enough. Let's hear from Professor Conti himself about this lively period of democracy talk. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Gregory Conti, author of the 2019 book, Parliament, the Mirror of the Nation, Representation, Deliberation, and Democracy in Victorian Britain. Thank you for joining us today, Greg. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's good. I'm, I'm, I think this book is, I would have thought, now what could Victorian brother arcane debates about Victorian democracy have to say to us? But it's a very useful background to how modern democratic systems came to be. So I'd like to talk about the background of your book in terms of how it came to be published. Your book is part of a series from Cambridge University Press called Ideas in Context. And I'd like to ask you about that series and how your book came to be one of the entries in it and why your book is such a useful combination of political theory and fairly straightforward history. 
Uh, great. Well, um, I first uh, yeah, let me reiterate my uh, my thanks for uh, asking me to come on here and say how much I appreciate the uh, attention with what you went through. What's a pretty dense and uh, <laughs> and heavy book full of sort of arcane technical details and unfamiliar authors and so on. Um, but to answer your question, which is a good one and kind of has a few different uh, parts to it already. Um, as for ideas and context specifically, uh, that's probably um, probably the most esteemed series in the field of the history of political thought. Uh, it's been around for decades now. It was the brainchild of Quentin Skinner and uh, other luminaries associated with uh, what was called the Cambridge School or contextualist approach to the study of political theory. That is basically the idea that to understand even authors who we might regard as articulating kind of perennial or transcendental principles like Hobbes or Plato, uh, one still needs to understand the debates and movements in which they were enmeshed at the time. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the calling card of the, the series. I'll mention uh, that alongside this series, those same, more or less the same people founded another series at Cambridge, which is called uh, the Cambridge Text in the History of Political Thought, or as it's often uh, known, the, the Blue Series, because all the volumes have blue covers. And that series brings out modern editions of, uh, of these sort of older texts with scholarly introductions and notes and so forth to make them accessible. Uh, and I slip in a mention of that sort of for selfish reasons, because <laughs> we actually have a book coming out in, in that series uh, in February. So anyone who liked this book could uh, go and pursue that. It's a, a book that will collect and analyze in depth some of the writings of one of the, the figures who's kind of featured in this book. Uh, that's the constitutional lawyer, Albert Van Dicey. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad to hear that because he was a really fascinating figure in the book. And I was really learned a lot about him from your book. And I'm so glad that you'll you'll deal with him at length in another book. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, he is a very interesting figure. Uh, this book sort of mostly focuses on on his his sort of youth uh, insofar as he enters into it. But the um, and he was on the scene life, a long many decades, wasn't he? he? He was he lived a very long life. Yes. Mm. And um, yeah, this this upcoming thing is kind of a collection of writings of his from from later uh, than this book covers. Um, but yeah, uh, anyway, um, how did my book come to be in the series? Well, uh, there's nothing particularly exalted about the process, I guess. I sent them the manuscript and they accepted it. Um, <laughs> and I was very happy to publish it with them kind of for the reasons I, I said above uh, about its sort of place within the place within the field. Um, and then uh, I did have some thoughts. I don't know how much you want to go into this about you. You asked about kind of the combination of political. Yes, I'd be interested and, in that because history. you do discuss that in the book. and It's very interesting. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, as for whether my my book is a kind of successful combination of the two. Uh, and the, well, two, be, really the, two, the to, two being history and political theory. Then. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not really for me to, to say, I suspect, but I'll take your word uh, for it that it is. Um, I do think that there is kind of a, you know, on the general point, though, about why it is that political theorists and philosophers should pay attention to history, I do think there's there are some things to be said. And, um, and then it's, it's useful to keep these in view. And I would just say that, and this also gets to some of the aspirations of the book, I think, if we bear these in mind. So I, I think there are really two reasons why you want philosophers and, and political theorists to to know something about history and to pay close attention to it. 
And the first, I think, is just that history helps to, to focus one's mind on concrete questions and not get caught up in some of the abstraction that's mm-hmm. inherent in a lot of philosophizing. Uh, so I think, you know, in, in kind of in public discourse and political philosophy, it's quite difficult not to just take for granted an overwhelming number of assumptions, such as the institutional backdrop that happens to exist at any given time. And there's kind of a tendency to, to naturalize whatever features we see of the political world around us to imagine they're much more permanent uh, than they are. And so I think, you know, to kind of historicize political thought is a way of avoiding being complacent about the sort of institutional setup you see in front of, in, in front of you. And uh, it also, I think, history forces you to confront concrete institutional forms in light of which past thinkers might have articulated values that now uh, we readily assume kind of have only a certain valence to them. So, you know, we might assume that equality mandates X, Y, or Z, because that's how we're used to talking about it in the time. And what historical inquiry provides, I think, is a sense of mismatch. You know, so you can look back and you can find institutions unlike those with which we're familiar being justified in the name of values or ends which resonate with us, or vice versa. You can kind of find institutions similar or identical to our own being defended on grounds that are not widely known or accepted today. So I think for that reason, history is kind of, you know, it, it can play a mediating role for political philosophers between sort of the concrete and the institutional and the particular and sort of normative or the realm of very high high values. Um, and I also think another reason why it's good to pay close attention to history um, is maybe more, you know, this is maybe more ontological. It's kind of something about the character of our political ideas. And that's just that all of our major concepts and ideas were themselves shaped historically. And so if you have no reference to that history, you're almost certain to just wind up presenting as great innovations, you know, great innovations that came from one's own mind. What are in truth sort of longstanding and intractable uh, problems and dilemmas? So, you know, I think it's, it's just not true, for example, that one could derive the meaning of liberalism or socialism simply abstractly without, rel- you know, without reference to the development of ideas over time, especially because things like liberalism, socialism, democracy, et cetera, are traditions that were built up uh, by intellectuals and political actors. And as such, you know, I think they partake of certain observable patterns and structures that persist even as change occurs. So I think to claim to elaborate a liberal or socialist political philosophy without some real knowledge of the genesis and evolution of these categories is kind of, you know, misleading and mystifying. And um, so, yeah, I think I'll just, you know, I'll just leave it there on, on the general question of why, it is, why it's useful to attend to history for people who are interested in political philosophy. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I'm not, just the last thing to say, I guess, is I'm not a methodological fundamentalist in any way. I don't think that, you know, my book is kind of, you know, monopolizes the template for how to write a good book. There are plenty of extremely good books in political philosophy that are much less historical than my own. But those are some of the reasons why I'm attracted to to history. 
Well, I, th I think one thing that was very interesting about your book is you do revisit figures such as Mill. I'll mention that in just a moment, but you do use history very effectively to illustrate the ideas that were being discussed. So all of these people are discussing, well, in a very elevated fashion among a very elite circle. But then you then you have the statistic in your book that when, that from eight about a third of adult men in Britain from 1885 to 1918 still lacked the franchise. So while these men were all these men primarily men were discussing this, you point out that a huge proportion of the British population, let alone women, were not able to vote, and that's why these that's why it's so fascinating to have your to have your analysis of of, <clears throat> of connecting the fact that they were discussing things that affected real people. But one of the things that I think is effective in that is that these real people were affected by the fact that, for example, that John Stuart Mills, you make the point that his ideas, and he's regarded as this great liberal, this, this voice of, of reason and so forth, many of his ideas, as particularly on proportional representation, were fundamentally anti-democratic. At least that's what yeah. many of his critics said. Could you address Mills' views of, and also why he leaped to, well, actually, could you tell us about Thomas Hare and why John Stuart Mill just pounced on his ideas and why they, why why he promoted them so strongly. Uh, sure, yeah. So uh, Thomas Hare, yeah, you're you're right to kind of focus on him. He is one of the central players in the book. I think when I was looking back at it to refresh the for this interview, I think he is actually the most cited person in the book. Mm. And what's what's important about him for this work? is that he was the person who developed the notion of proportional representation that became central to Victorian England. He conceived of the scheme that's called, um, still to this day, called the single transferable vote, which was adopted, as you say, by John Stuart Mill, the most famous philosopher of the time, and treated as one of the great discoveries in the realm of representative government to that point in history by Mill. Uh, I think he said basically that... Um, you know, that Hare's innovation had solved all of the extant dilemmas about representative <laughs> So pretty, pretty high praise. And Hare's an interesting figure. I mean, he was in some ways very emblematic of the social and intellectual world of Victorian liberalism. He was of Mill's generation, uh, which is to say he was born in the first decade of the 19th century. Um, he was a prolific author writing on a number of subjects, but he also again, like Mill, who worked in um, who worked in the East India Company for his whole life, and like a lot of the great uh, Victorian authors, Matthew Arnold and so forth, uh, he um, was not just a prolific author, but also had a notable professional career. And in his day job, he was a barrister and then an inspector of charities. Hmm. And um, also some of his dearest causes, like support of industrial cooperatives, um, which Mill also fastened on were very fashionable among the educated liberal set of his day. So anyway, he came into Mill's life and into broader public prominence in the late 1850s when he laid out in elaborate detail um, a scheme of the single transferable vote for one single national constituency. That's another very odd feature of Hare's uh, theory, that there would be no local constituencies whatsoever. Uh, and the English electoral system anymore. Anyway, and he called that package of items uh, personal representation. Hmm. Um, sorry, yeah, and you had um, other, what exactly did you want me to get into about, about hair? Um, well, well, well about I'm, oh, I'm sorry, you go ahead, you go ahead. No, no, did you want me to oh, well, I just further I just, about the theme or? Well, I uh, wondered, I wondered that, well, for example, in the single transferable vote, 
that that was that was Harris one of Harris the basis of Harris ideas or one of them. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So could I mean, you, Harris, could, you, could you, you explain about how that would wipe out? Uh, I mean, we, you talk about in the book it would wipe out local local constituency. So, so that would, wouldn't that lead to just utter domination by London of the rest of the entire country? That it would it would. Well, um, well, no, London would, whatever proportion of the population London represented, uh, London would have the possibility of electing that many, um, that many voters to, um, that many uh, members to parliament. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's, here's, there's an interesting aspect. So as you say, here's system, I think for our purposes can be said to be based on two things. One is the single transferable vote, which that's a mechanism for how to allocate um, people's votes. And the second is this question of the scope of constituencies. And you could have combined these differently. So indeed, Ireland to this day has the single transferable vote, but they also have a number of local constituencies. They just use the single transferable vote within those. So what Hare proposed to do basically to have an elaborate system of quotas and to allow voters to rank order their preferred candidate. Mm. What would happen is uh, the single transferable vote is quite a technical subject, but basically the idea, um, the idea is to have a quota of votes, a quota here meaning how many votes you need to get in order to be returned to parliament. And that quota is established by dividing the number of members that you're going to have in parliament, so at that time, 658, by the overall number of voters uh, who will cast a ballot. And any candidate who attains that number is elected from wherever in the country their votes come. And then as soon as they reach the quota, any surplus votes that they get are transferred to other candidates who those voters had listed lower on their ballot. And then you kind of eliminate other candidates sequentially, and their votes are also translated, are uh, transferred to other candidates. And you just eliminate um, everyone until you eliminate from the slate of candidates, whoever's at the bottom, and transfer their votes until you fill up the number of members needed for parliament. So it's a quite a complicated system, but mm -hmm. basically, from the perspective of the voter, you have the right to list as many names as you want in order. And let's say that my first vote goes to somebody who receives way more votes than he needs, well, then that my vote would be transferred to whoever's next on my list. And let's say that person receives way fewer votes than they would need to get elected. Well, then my, that hit the vote for my, my vote for the second person is translated to whoever's third on my list, and so on, until your vote arrives as part of an effective quota for somebody who's actually getting elected to parliament. So it's a complicated, very complicated system, as you point out. And I think that did, in fact, impede its acceptance. Um, but that's somewhat separate from the question of the size of the constituency. So one thing you could do is um, just have a constituency where, say, you know, what, just within this town, we're going to elect three members to parliament. And we're going to decide who those three members are by the single transferable vote. That's one thing you could do. And that's that's much less sort of elaborate. You don't have people potentially listing, you know, hundreds of names on their ballot. <laughs> um, but Hare didn't. Hare was unsatisfied with that, and Hare wanted to do away with local territorial districting in its entirety, and have a single national constituency. In Israel, they actually have a single national constituency, 
though they don't use the single transferable vote. They use a, a system, a party list system. So, you know, for hair, what would happen is um, that candidates could still, if they wished for, symbolically list themselves as standing from a given locality. But voters would not be bound to vote for candidates from their own district. They could simply vote for whomever they wished from throughout the nation. And for pair, this provision was intended to liberate electors hmm. from the happenstance constraints of locality so that they might combine with other citizens of similar opinions to return the candidate they judged most fit and to combine um, with, with other citizen, like-minded citizens wherever they might be in, uh, you know, across the United Kingdom. So for Hare, this was really a matter of individual emancipation, um, liberating voters from narrow, the kind of narrow constraints of local constituencies, which he thought inhibited uh, their ability but to engage in voluntary and natural forms of association. So, you know, it's a, it's a quite elaborate scheme if you're interested uh, I think it's much easier to get a grip on it by actually reading it than by hearing someone try to talk about it, uh, because it is, you know, electoral systems are complicated and it's easier to see them sort of diagrammed on the page. But really, well, what well, Aaron, well, well, I was just going to say, speaking speaking of reading it, you have this very funny line in your book about how how difficult Hare was to to read because you say, hmm. in consequence of the almost unreproachable manner in which the book was composed. There developed a subgenre within Victorian political literature, the clarification of hair pamphlet, which I thought was <laughs> yeah. a hilarious line because it, it made clear that this these were very and, and someone like right like Ramsey McDonald later in your book, he just completely dismisses the idea and he just says it's, it's too this is too complicated, it actually impairs representative democracy. And it was it was fascinating how how impatient other others got with it, and rightly so, I think. But I interrupted you, I'm sorry. No, no. Well, I think that's true. I think um, I think there are there are versions of the single transferable vote that are more workable. In practice, uh, the single transferable vote probably works best uh, in situations where you do have a set of geographically arranged constituencies and you're going to elect multiple members from them. So say something like three to five members. And then what the single trans transferable vote allows to happen there is that, say, I don't know, 20 people could run. Uh, regard and parties wouldn't face this problem where they have to winnow down to just a few candidates in order to avoid having their vote be split in ways that harm them because people can rank order the candidates they wish. So, you know, if um, so, there's no worry that, say, you know, if just to, to use American party labels, that uh, Republicans would would run too many candidates and therefore the vote would be split too many ways and only Democrats would get in from the constituency. So, you know, you can imagine that working and uh, in a sense, allowing voters a little more free choice, loosening up the ability of parties to constrain uh, who can effectively stand for office. You can imagine that working in smaller, more manageable constituencies. And indeed, actually in Cambridge, Massachusetts, they, um, they still use the single transferable vote. Um, at my university, Princeton, they use the single transferable vote for, um, for faculty various faculty committees. Um, and you can imagine it working in those contexts. But yeah, in, in terms of an entire nation uh, liberated from any kind of, ge of geographical boundaries, it becomes quite quite implausible that people are, say, going to be able to list you know, 45 names intelligently. Um, and uh, I think Hare's scheme 
rightly kind of came to grief on those grounds. Um, as for its complicatedness, I mean, it's, it's true that it's a very complex book. And it's true that in his own way, Hare was a kind of utopian and a dreamer. Mm. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, I don't think that's a reason not to pay attention to it. Um, oh, I think, yeah, you know, it, it is quite funny that, as you know, you, you were right to pick up on that passage. It is funny that he could have thought that this very complex, very involved tract that he had written was going to play a decisive role in shaping actual party politics. And so in Hare there, you, you do sort of see a recurring pathology, you might say, <laughs> amongst intellectuals and in politics who just are, are unable to calibrate their ideas, you know, at the right level for public consumption. <laughs> On the other hand, though, I do think that you can see in Hare's work kind of, it's interesting to see how major concepts like, um, you know, representative government, like the freedom of uh, the elector, uh, it's curious to see how they're deployed in relation to other values and uh, in relation to a concrete, you know, instance of, of reform. Um, and so I think for that reason, Hare's election of representatives is well worth reading. Um, you know, for instance, I think it's quite telling that Hare, you know, in selling his electoral system, he tries to set it within a broad historical trajectory mm. of increasing individual liberty. So, you know, he sees kind of the sweep of politics, um, especially, you know, post-revolutionary uh, France, you know, he sees the scope of modern politics after the French Revolution and after the Reform Act in England as one where the arc of history is bending towards greater individual choice. And he thinks one area, though, where we don't, in fact, see um, the system living up to those values or don't see reform concretely guided by the prospect of emancipating the individual is in the electoral system. And he believed that his was a project for bringing that kind of liberty, which so many kind of view as a, a hallmark of classical liberalism. Well, he saw himself importing that into elections. Similarly, you know, he makes a lot of analogies between his system of personal or proportional representation and the principles of free trade in the economic realm, which were really cherished by liberals of the day. Hmm. So it's, it's an interesting book in the sense that it combines a kind of wild impracticality about a particular <laughs> aspect, right? The fact that, and really, though, only one particular aspect. I mean, he, uh, he believed that you could have the single transferable vote in a single national constituency in order to generate a parliament of 658 members. That was wrong. <laughs> but in a sense, if he had been a little bit more flexible about that and been able to see the single transferable vote as something that allowed you to loosen, say, geographical restrictions, have constituencies of five to 10 members or something, um, and to replicate that across uh, the country, uh, it's very possible that he would have struck uh, a chord that resonated with, um, you know, that with that resonated with people in in the country, and certainly a lot of people took up his mantle afterwards and tried to say that the single national constituency was not an essential part of Hare's scheme. And in fact, we can make some concessions on that front. And once we do, we'll see that personal representation, as Hare conceived it, is in a sense the best way to achieve. Um, 
to achieve in the electoral realm goals and values to which there was broad assent in other realms of Victorian life. So uh, I do in the book discuss some of those figures who kind of tried to domesticate Hare's, uh, Hare's scheme a little bit and push for it afterwards. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I think broadly that's a way of thinking about his his importance. And um, I think he's an un, kind of been a sadly neglected figure uh, by by historians and political theorists. Uh, well, that's a con- major contribution of your book. He's neglected no longer, so he's very he's dealt with in great detail. And <laughs> well, yeah, like, I, I wonder if we could talk about an, another figure that you talked about their view of history, and one who was looking backwards rather than forwards was Walter Badgett. Could you discuss his his ideas in comparison to Hare and how and and what was what were the the what was the variety of suffrages school and did they did they call themselves that or that is that your own term that's that's a a, a term of art that's come to be applied to them or um, yeah good good uh, question maybe this is a chance for me just to lay out a little bit the contending uh, by way of answering your question to lay out a little bit some of the contending. Uh, schools of thought uh, in the book. So yeah, the, the book is is basically the kind of leading argument of the book is that there is this uh, overarching commitment that transcends kind of partisan or ideological boundaries uh, to create a parliament that kind of accurately mirrors the different interests and social cleavages within the nation. Mm. And, um, you know, what I try to argue there is that when you once you appreciate the broad reach of this ideal, you can then see that there was a disagreement amongst kind of different interpretations of what this implied. And as you point out, Walter Badgett, who is, you know, has been called the greatest Victorian, and some people will know of him from, say, the crown, for example. The crown begins with uh with uh, the young Elizabeth reading Walter Badgett to learn about her duty as a <laughs> constitutional monarch and so on. Um, or maybe people know of his sort of economic writings. Anyway, he was also um, a writer on... Um, and he founded the, the Economist Project. magazine, too. People might know him for that, so... Exactly, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was also a writer on parliamentary uh, reform, and he is emblematic of, as you say, what I call the variety of suffragist school. And um, you asked if that was it. It's it is sort of it's a term of art to apply it to the whole swath of thinkers, but the term is themselves take is itself taken directly from uh, from their own writings. So you know Walter Badgett said that a variety of suffrages was the true liberal principle for regulating electoral matters. What they meant by that was this basically that in order to have a kind of um, in order to have a House of Commons that would adequately reflect uh, different classes, interest groups, and ideological movements, you could not just accept a uniform uniform suffrage, right? Instead, you had to deliberately vary the kinds of constituencies you created and the rules for qualifying for the vote within those constituencies across the nation. And you did this because that very diversity of electoral rules would then permit um, all the different facets of a diverse society to have spokesmen in Parliament. Um, and they believed, um, as you kind of alluded to in your question, they believed that their proposals for reform to increase the amount of variety in the electoral system and kind of tailor the rules of the electoral system in order to bring different interests into Parliament, 
they believe that these proposals accorded with English constitutional history. Mm. Because until the 1832 Reform Act, um, the sort of, uh, the kind of long inherited uh, unreformed, what we now call, looking back, unreformed parliament was a sort of haphazard patchwork of mm. different rules in different boroughs uh, that had arisen for all kinds of reasons because um, a kind of royal edict um, making the borough imposed certain rules at the time because different rules had developed over history in different ways because in a certain borough, uh, everyone who was a freeman of a corporation was able to qualify or everyone who paid a certain tax was able to qualify. And then in other boroughs, there were quite high property qualifications and so on. And there was no standardization um, across a huge portion of the pre-1832 electoral system. Um, except and, the, and also the fact the that huge, huge, huge cities were not or were underrepresented versus tiny, little, insig fairly insignificant agricultural. That was one of the biggest beefs, right? Exactly. exactly. So yeah, huge, the, these kind of rising industrial cities like Manchester are, are absent from the scene. <laughs> Whereas towns that have four people, you know, are <laughs> so what people like Badgett do is they look back and say, of course, we needed the Reform Act because the system had come badly. It had all these corruptions within it and it had come, in a sense, badly out of joint with developments within British society. You can't leave out major industrial and trading towns and yet have, in effect, entirely empty villages returning <laughs> to members to parliament. <laughs> But they, they did believe the principle that underlay the tolerance of this sort of haphazard, unstandardized, very diverse patchwork of electoral laws was a good one. And that you could kind of revive that principle for, um, you know, for a, a now modernizing England. So really there, you know, for them, they are bitter opponents of any kind of uniform suffrage. And you can think a little bit about how much this uh, contrasts with our own instincts today. I mean, I think now people are quite horrified to think that, um, you know, requirements to vote in, let's just say one county wildly differ from those the next county over. We would consider this arbitrary and exclusive and unfair. But in fact, that didn't trouble people like Badgett at all. They, they saw uniformity as um, really a dreadful aspect of an electoral system. And this is because if you have uniform, a uniform suffrage that has extremely, say, restrictive uh, requirements for holding the vote, say you need to own a significant amount of property, mm. uh, well, then that amounts to oligarchy, as they would say. Mm. Only the opinions of a kind of upper class would be included in the representative system. But conversely, if you have a uniform suffrage that has no requirement for the vote or only say very permissive requirements for the vote, um, what we would call democracy, what they call democracy, well then you open yourself up to what would be called the tyranny of the majority. The idea that the working class or other majority groups like say Catholics in Ireland or something, mm. by virtue of their vast numbers would simply swamp or overwhelm the other elements in society and lead to a kind of monolithic uh, an exclusivist parliament. And, um, you know, then they feared that all kinds of dreadful sort of ills would follow from either of these forms of exclusion, an oligarchic one or a, 
a democratic or a democratic form of exclusion, uh, including kind of partial and unenlightening parliamentary debate and uh, instability, uh, stagnation, a halting of progress, um, and and so forth. So that's really the kind of variety of suffragist view. The idea that what you would do is deliberately vary suffrage rules and constituency construction across uh, you know, across the country. And I go through in the book a bunch of different models. These uh, include rather Baroque uh, templates. Sorry, there's somebody, there's extreme, a lot of noise right outside my window out of nowhere. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. I think a leaf, leaf blower or some street cleaner. Anyway, <laughs> sorry if you can hear that. But anyway, these were like quite simple models sometimes. Badgett's view was basically let's have universal suffrage in the cities in order that um, the sort of urban working classes could get themselves represented there. But let's have uh, more restrictive requirements in other parts of the country, such that um, uh, different property interests can have a place in parliament. And others, as I said, had more Baroque schemes where they would really uh, earmark certain constituencies just for different religious groups or just for different professional orders. Mm. And uh, in effect, these variety of suffrages views could become, uh, could approximate extremely elaborate systems of quotas um, in order to make sure that kind of every single voice in this polyphonic society of theirs could have parliamentary spokesmen. So, you know, that's that's really where the book takes off is by looking at these figures who thought of themselves as not Democrats because they rejected the uniformity of the suffrage, um, but who also saw themselves as being diverse and inclusive mm. and as aspiring for um, diversity, inclusivity, deliberation uh, across kind of different interests as the overarching goals of uh, a parliamentary system. And then the book sort of looks at democratic responses to this. Uh, and I basically say that there are two, you know, there's kind of a democratic response that uh, accepts these values of the variety of suffragists, uh, values like uh, diversity, inclusivity, deliberation, and suggests that in fact, a, a democratic suffrage regime is not going to prove inconsistent with them. In fact, it will enhance and preserve diversity and deliberation, say. Um, so that's kind of a first response and attempt to meet these variety of suffragist theorists on their own turf and show that democracy is consistent with their ideal. And um, secondly, uh, I map out sort of Democrats who just decide to reject the, uh, the variety of suffragists' ideals altogether and uh, attack those ideas as being kind of arbitrary, unfair, inconsistent with um, equality and impartiality and uh, values like non-arbitrariness that they see as absolutely essential to representative government. That, and would the the, last... that would be the Ramsey McDonald school that he just said, enough of these complex systems are just silly and they're just, they're not fair. And Indeed, yeah, I think he, he kind of comes out of a, uh, he, he's sort of a, a bit of a later kind of at the tail end of what the book covers chronologically, but yeah, certainly. And, you know, what the person I mentioned earlier, Albert Van Dicey, he kind of stands in as uh, the figure who articulates this democratic objection to the variety of suffragist school uh, in the earlier kind of part of the, the uh, 
um, chronology in the mid-Victorian period where a lot of the book, book focuses. And then I, I talk about how the theory of proportional representation sort of comes out of, um, you know, enters as a, as a sort of third school that also uh, very strongly announces the need for uh, parliament to mirror the nation and all of its diverse interests, but um, proposes an extremely different technical means to do, to do this, not by varying suffrage rules, but in fact, by having uniform suffrage rules, but changing how votes are allocated. Um, and uh, also, though, then brings in a kind of different set of values and inflects some of the existing values about deliberation and diversity in a somewhat different light. Uh, and so those are sort of the three, the, the three broad schools. And in, at each you know, part of the book, I try to talk both about their own value system and how that related to the institutions they endorsed, uh, but also try to deal with critics of them. So as you noted, um, you know, in discussing proportional representation, I also try to, um, to deal with figures who upheld what we would now call a first-past-the-post system, mm -hmm. an idea of plurality rule, fixed territorial constituencies uh, against um, the views of the proportionalists. Um, so, you know, uh, and try to stage these as debates that uh, involve kind of moral disagreement about what ends to pursue. Um, and also, though, kind of concrete disagreements about whether in fact specific institutions serve shared values, say. So, you know, you can reject the variety of suffragists, variety of suffragists on the grounds that, um, that the, the means they adopt, the institutions they adopt, this system of varying um, the character of constituencies and suffrage rules across society is not a good means to achieve their own ends of diversity and inclusivity and so on. Or you could just reject those ends. Say those are not, in fact, the most important values to pursue. And one of the things the book shows, for example, is that there were kind of Democrats in each of those two camps. And similarly with proportional representation, there were people who rejected it because they just thought that it wasn't a good route to achieve extremely important values, which the proportionalists themselves upheld. And then there were people who kind of rejected the entire value system of the proportional representationists um, and instead advocated quite different sets of kind of ends for an electoral system to, to pursue. So is, is that one of the reasons that 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 your book your book is valuable? Because the fact that proportional representation did not catch on and you explain why? And that's very helpful to because Britain to this day, in fact, they had a, a referendum in the 1990s about it. And it, it just that just died, apparently. And it's it, the people it, even decades later. So it shows that the book is very relevant even now. So but I, I'd like to ask about you mentioned the word stagnation and mm. the, the fact that that all many of them, not all of them, but many of them worried about stagnation in Parliament, how to keep it a lively intellectual forum. The question was, how do you how do you get it that way or how do you keep it that way without mm. without getting what well, the word swamped is also used that they were they were they feared that that well, they feared just the personnel would be working people who were not well educated. And also the fact that they they distrusted political parties. I'm realizing that throwing a lot at you. But could you discuss mm. stagnation versus intellectual 
I, I guess, uh, vivacity or, or vigor and and how each of them address that? Uh, yeah, good, good question. Um, yeah, and it seems like finally whatever this very loud noise was uh, on the street has dissipated. So my apologies for being. Oh, oh it's okay. Uh, I, can't, I, did, I don't I think it'll come across. So. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. Um, yeah, so I think uh, stagnation was a major bugbear of sort of 19th century liberal, very broadly construed thought. Uh, and, you know, anyone who's read Mill can see these kinds of fears. Broadly, there's the idea that um, with the kind of arrival of a mass society, um, you know, there, there will be a, a deadening of intellectual life. Uh, you can, this is um, something that one sees in, in Tocqueville as well. But, and especially the fear is something like, well, as the working classes uh, come to a kind of political ascendancy, does that mean that uh, politics will be subjected to uh, the least intelligent, the least educated, so to speak, uh, stratum of the nation? And that there will be a sort of a loss of new ideas, uh, a loss of deliberation across uh, these different contending classes in favor of just a sort of single um, and in their eyes, particularly benighted or backwards uh, or ignorant uh, point of view. And different people had um, different thoughts about this matter. So plenty of folks, uh, some of them that I talk about here, just reject it. I mean, they find that to be a kind of prejudicial way of viewing the working class. They see the working class as uh, just as capable of deliberation, just as able, uh, just as kind of riven by moral differences um, as any other class in society. And they see that they view their introduction into that um, kind of into constitutional and political life with something like equanimity. And those people often are quite okay with um, instruments that we now all accept today, like the mass disciplined political party as a way of allowing average citizens to exert some say in politics and of um, you know, structuring deliberation in political life for a mass electorate. But as you point out, plenty of other people were deeply concerned about the prospect of, of stagnation and wanted to find ways to, uh, to avoid it. And one of these ways was proportional representation, again, uh, and also the variety of suffrages appeals to this too. But there, both of these claim that they provide routes by which uh, you'll avoid a working class monopoly of parliamentary life. So, um, and the hope is that by avoiding that, you will retain this kind of clash of interest against interest, value against value, that allows for progress to, to flourish. You can see here a kind of outlook that's best known perhaps from uh, Mills on Liberty. You can see that that concern about the necessity of diversity for the creation of truth was also present, not just in debates particularly about freedom of speech, um, but also in debates about the character of the electoral system. Um, and then though there were, there were kind of opponents on each of these, you know, there were opponents to both a variety of suffrages and proportional representation who also feared stagnation, but just thought that um, the particular models that their antagonists were advocating would make the problem worse. So one of the arguments against 
CARES system is that it will be kind of clickish. Mm. Yes, it's true that HARES system will allow a lot of, um, you know, it will allow a lot of eccentricity into Parliament. Yeah. Why why they say would that be a good thing? I mean, why is it that we want, um, you know, if one 658th of the country can just band together, uh, you know, can can their their votes can simply accumulate on a single individual uh, who will then go into Parliament and only uh kind of beat the drum for whatever strange or eccentric view that they alone care about how is that in their mind fostering deliberation for these folks what's actually of value is the traditional local constituency because the traditional local constituency gives you a sort of defined um geographical community in which citizens can come to know one another and in which they can stage debates that are intelligible to them. So uh, also uh, having to compete to win majorities within particular local constituencies, they think, is precisely what's required uh, for having productive deliberation and for avoiding and for avoiding a kind of deadening of political life. So one thing you can see here is that this maybe maps on to a difference of thought about where the focal point of political deliberation should be. Should it be in Parliament itself? If it should be in Parliament itself, then what, you know, in a sense, all that matters is getting in all of the relevant voices, getting spokesmen for all of the relevant voices within the House of Commons and letting them duke it out over the course of the House's debates. But if what matters for avoiding stagnation is keeping citizens engaged, well, then you might want... um, you might look at electoral systems completely differently. Uh, and that's something that you kind of see in you know, the way I try to reconstruct the debates between proportional representation theorists and, uh, and their antagonists who favored traditional local constituencies. Well, there were some really funny passages in the books making fun of the idea that uh, under some of the schemes that a say a vegetarian who was obsessed with vegetarian and vegetarianism only <laughs> that he would that he would have that he would get a seat in parliament whereas a person who represented an entire coal mining community would be would not and that kind of thing it's, it's but you lay out the um the the consequences very very well and, and some of the arguments were ferocious and funny and they were they would just ridicule each other's arguments with with great zeal and, and humor um Oh, you mentioned, well, we're getting towards the end, but I was just going to say you, you talked about the, the, the protectionist overtones of some of, of, of the, um, of Mill's ideas. Could you talk, well, you discussed that, the protectionist ideas, but who, who else were, was represented the idea of keeping people out of parliament? I mean, what were, what were, what were some of the specific techniques? That, well, one, I'm sorry, one of the things I thought was fascinating in the book was that the working class spokespeople had to calm people down by saying, well, we're really not a threat. In fact, we'll be so mild and so insignificant <laughs> and so milk toasty that they had to undermine their own argument for representation in a way. And you make the point that the middle class was was the the bet noir of many of the people involved that they didn't it wasn't so much the working class. It was the middle class that they thought were was was too, was in danger of having too much power. Uh, yeah, so I think um, I'm not sure that Mill was somebody who was accused of protectionist ideas. I think his his side um, 
people who supported hair in the single transferable vote system, which, you know, they thought of themselves as in a way introducing laissez-faire principles uh, and principles of free association and free trade into the electoral system. They accused their opponents of a kind of, uh, a kind of protectionism. But that doesn't mean that people like Mill and Hare were Democrats by our standards. Mm. Uh, and indeed, I think, you know, it, it's best that there's there's quite a lot of loose talk about how Democratic Mill was when, in fact, Mill favored uh, pretty significant restrictions on the franchise um, and, you know, favored things uh, like public voting. He opposed the secret ballot, which, you know, are, are somewhat hard to stomach for contemporary contemporary Democrats. Uh, so one shouldn't, I think, you know, imagine that just because um, someone like Hare or Mill, um, you know, adopts uh, values and views that now have a kind of democratic resonance to them. We, we can't uh, assume that they themselves understood uh, what they were doing as advancing the cause of democracy. Hare, I think, certainly didn't see himself as a Democrat in any strong sense. With Mill, it's a bit more ambiguous. Sometimes he did see himself as um, as as a sort of true Democrat, and uh, sometimes he distinguished himself from uh, from the kind of broader cause of democracy and saw himself as offering uh, an alternative to it. Um, as for your sorry, what was your other? Oh, you asked about yeah, fearing the working classes, the middle classes. Yeah, um, I think again, uh, just to be a, a bit rapid here. Um, it, you know, there are um, widely varying estimates of kind of the value of what different classes have to contribute to the political process. And there are differing estimates of where, in fact, power seems to lie at any given time. After 1832, a number of people did become kind of uh, worried that the middle classes, and these are quite affluently, you know, the middle class quite affluently defined, um, that they had, in fact, come to arrogate a kind of monopoly on political life and that this was deeply to be sort of deplored and that a number of different voices, in particular voices from the working class, needed to uh, be included in the process. Mill would certainly, I think, fall under that heading. Um, the uh, But, you know, as you say, there was an in incredible amount of fear about the working class. It's important to bear in mind when we look back on this um, that there was not anything even close to a national public education system in Britain until 1870. Mm. So in a way, you know, it's not, it's not irrational to fear uh, what will happen when a huge swath of uneducated voters enters the political process. Uh, we might not like some of the conclusions they draw, but it was a, you know, quite a different, quite a different time and worth reflecting on why they might have been afraid of that outcome. Um, and different arguments were made about how to think about including the working class in that context. So as you point out, some people said, well, look, the working class will actually be quite deferential to the classes above. Mm, yeah, deferential. Therefore including, yeah, therefore, including them will have all kinds of broader moral benefits. It will increase the stability of the system, too. It will make the working classes feel that they have a stake in politics. It will contribute to their political education. You know, in a sense, these people argued that the only way to become capable as a class of participation in political life is to start participating in it mm -hmm. and learning, you know, learning on the job, so to speak. Um, 
So that's kind of one argument that this will not, it will not lead to a broad dislocation. It will not change fundamentally the character of uh, English politics, but instead allow for a kind of gradual improvement. And, um, but as you said, that's kind of a way of arguing for the working classes that diminishes what distinctive contribution they might bring, mm. um, at least in the near term. It sort of suggests a longer term horizon whereby the working classes come to throw about their weight in, you know, in politics only after a sort of process of acculturation and education sets in. Uh, we're oh, and I will. I think I, I better. I better let you go because you're you're on you're on your way to a meeting. I know. So I will just, if, if that's all right, I will end it here because you're you're a busy man, and I've taken up a lot of your time. Oh no, I, no problem. Um, I would, did, yeah, unless you want, unless you wanted to make one more point. Well, I, I'll just conclude by saying, you know, yeah, that that way of sort of um, advocating for working class inclusion as not especially disruptive is not going to be satisfying. To Democrats who uh, who advance universal suffrage precisely because because they find the status quo intolerable, mm. you know, and do wish for democracy to bring about a kind of dislocation and a radical change in political and social life. And so again, you can see how even advocating something as radical at the time as a move towards universal suffrage can take on extremely different ideological valences. Um, you know, it can be. Uh, a tool for shoring up and conserving and gradually improving a system, or it can be a means to radically dislocating it. And you can see, yeah, very different views of democracy that that stem from that disagreement, even within the camp of people who uh, who want to make a change in that direction. So anyway, yeah, um, I'll, I'll stop there. Well, it was it's it really is a wonderful book because it, there's so many figures from from Virginia Woolf's father, Leslie Stevens. He's he's discussed and mm. and and Dicey, who your next book is about, will be is 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 a fascinating figure. And I look forward to that very much. And 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 Badgett, for those of so people who want to know about this aspect of his career, which is multifaceted. And it's 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 just a it's just a really rich, fascinating useful, useful book. You, you wouldn't think that it would have been for, for modern days, but it is. So thank you very much. And we'll just, we'll just with that, we'll end and thank you everyone. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye.